I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich, and I have with me Josh Spodak. Now, this is a guy I, ta- I had a pre-interview with him. I was really excited to talk to him. He's a three-time TEDx speaker. This guy, has uh, he's a best-selling author of uh, this book, Initiative and Leadership Step-by-Step, the Sustainable Life podcast. Uh, he- he's award-winning with that um, professor at NYU. You've even you know, taught leadership at West Point with the, uh, the director of um, U.S. Secretary of Defense, right? Yes, he's since become the Secretary of Defense. Is that because of working with me? Can't say for sure. Well, well, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So tell us a little bit about your background and why leadership was such an important role. And the reason I want to preface this for the audience, the reason I'm so excited is because I am really looking at the deep dive into leadership and what makes people leaders, what makes people followers and so on. So I'm really excited to have Josh here. Well, glad to be here. And I'll, I'll start with a very brief part about beforehand. If you wanna know more, let me know. Uh, because growing up, I was pretty nerdy, pretty geeky. I got a PhD in physics. Uh, I helped build a satellite that's orbiting the earth right now. And for a while I really thought physics, I, I, I wanna be a physicist. Um, and then I, I ended up leaving after I got my PhD to start my first company and was very successful at that. Uh, well, successful, then came the recession and it was difficult times. Uh, I got squeezed out by the investors, very painful experience. Could not, by that point, I severed my ties with academia, so I couldn't really go back. I ended up going to business school and that's where I found classes in leadership that I did not know existed. I thought Martin Luther King was born that way, Mandela was born that way. Eisenhower was born that way. I couldn't really change who I was. And I learned that on the contrary, you can change, you can develop social and emotional skills. Although I, I'll clarify that in school, I learned that you could. And there we had, uh, the classes were case study, reading and writing papers, not actually doing the things. After business school, yeah, I go in a meeting thinking, I've gotten great grades in leadership classes at business school. I'm a leader. I will run this meeting. And, and I, it didn't do very well because I later learned how to learn through and, and how I teach is experientially. If you want to. And so I look at what I learned in school was like, you can learn music appreciation. And that's, you know, you learn about the lives of Bach and Beethoven, but you don't learn how to play. You got to play scales. Same with leadership. I learned leadership appreciation in school. What I teach now is, and what I coach is how to lead. And it's a deep, deep passion of mine. Awesome. So we talked about this a little bit. And in my, in my uh, witnessing of, of the world, right, I feel like Kennedy was probably, at least as a president, the last great leader of our country. And the thing that I think made him a leader is not only did he bring people along with his vision, but he gave mandates, he gave direction to those visions. He said, we're going to go to the moon and by the end of the decade, go do that. And then all of a sudden people started flocking to create what he kind of mandated we should do. 
Um, so where do you think that that's lacking in the leadership and how does your, you know, your vision of leadership address those kinds of things so that we can move forward faster versus uh, wait for another great leader to show up? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the last thing you said there. What can, we, what can we do ourselves instead of just waiting for the next great leader to show up? Is that learning social and emotional skills, performance skills, is different than learning things about factual recall, things that you can take bubble tests for or write papers about. I mean, you can write papers about leadership, but the actual practice of it, you have to face, you have to understand yourself. You have to learn empathy, compassion, listening, uh, as well as uh, confidence. And these are not things that you can read your way into or write your way into. And learning them requires, there are, there are gonna be times, I guarantee everyone who tries, at some point they will think this, I've been at this six months, I'm worse off than I was when I started. I'm not gonna get anywhere. Others can do this, I just can't do it. Everyone will think that at some point. That's part of the process and they will get through that. It's, a, it's something different than what our schools have come to teach these days. Our schools, there are, with, there are exceptions, but generally it's factual recall, it's um, abstract analysis, which is valuable. I, I don't wanna take away from that, but it doesn't help you face fears of you know, going in front of an audience and um, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and sometimes failing, uh, not just failing, but like being, being ridiculed being uh, disrespected and bouncing back. You can get it in, in other areas than just practicing leadership. There's sports, give it to you, uh, performance arts. I think of leadership as a performance art. So just to go in my background, right? Every time I've ever had a position of leadership, it was in a style of master apprentice. Right. So I had somebody who was teaching me how to be a leader. And then as a leader, I would be teaching somebody how to be what I'm doing. Right. So I always had a master apprentice kind of relationship in that way. And it was very experiential. And I just want to kind of come back to what you just said about doing the practice of and knowing your traumas or knowing your history, because I've always told people that when I'm doing trauma work with them, if you want to get on a camera, but you're afraid of what people will think of you, the only way to do that is to get on that camera with people who are safe. And so if you keep rebuilding the same, or if you rebuild the somatic trauma with new somatic experiences, you'll be able to then reprogram that neuro pathway and as you do that, you get more and more comfortable being on stage, for instance. Is that kind of what you're saying with regards to leadership? Yeah. I mean, you say building neural pathways. It's, I would just simply say learning. I mean, it's to learn to do things. It is, in fact, um, forming neural pathways. You're learning. And you have, to, you have to practice these things. I mean, if you simply read about leadership, you'll learn how to read about leadership. That's different than, it's like learning, how, reading about playing piano. It teaches you how to read, how to play piano, but only fingers on the keyboard do it. That's the same thing that's gonna set up neural pathways. At the beginning when you play piano, I, I didn't learn to play piano, but I, I think that you, know, you play some scale 
the thumb is going to hit harder than the pinky generally. So you have to learn how to modulate the, you know, hit with the same, if you want the same volume, you have to hit with the same force, which means you have to push harder with your pinky. Likewise, if you're going to lead people and you want to make people feel comfortable sharing what motivates them so that you motivate them intrinsically, not telling them what to do, that managers can do that. And that's effective at times, but sometimes intrinsic motivation is going to get you much farther. And if you presume to know what the person, what motivates them, you're almost certainly going to be wrong. So how do you, but for them to share that is generally makes them feel vulnerable. So they're going to protect that. So if I'm going to communicate and behave in ways to make them feel comfortable sharing that, that takes that kind of nuance, that kind of subtlety, that kind of being able to pick up facial expression, eye movement, tone of voice, uh, both seeing theirs as well as my, uh, doing your own. Yeah, modulating your own. So yeah. how do you do that? Do you, do you use mirror work to, to modulate your own or do you like, how, what, what is your process for creating that level of, of leadership in yourself and awareness? I'll give a very low level, not a, a somewhat low level answer and then give a higher level answer. When I, okay, after school, I picked up, there was this difference between learning about something and learning something. And at the, at the time I was watching Inside the Actors Studio a bunch. I don't know if people have seen it, but I, I loved it. It's, now it's no longer James Lipton. He's, um, he's some other host now, but he would bring on all the best guests, Pacino, De Niro, Streep, you know, people like that. And I kept noticing that they had the skills that I was supposed to have learned in business school. Over and over again, they kept saying they dropped out of school. They got kicked out of school. They never went to school in the first place. I was like, that's weird. Cause I went to an Ivy league business school and my professors weren't anywhere near able to practice the emotional and social skills that these people could. And yet they didn't go to school at all. And then the more I studied or learned about them, cause my curiosity is now like, what's going on? How's it, how's this possible? It shouldn't be this way. It's not that they, they stopped going that what they were talking about was like mainstream course coercion based school. They would still get education. And so then I learned about like, um, um, the group theater and Stanislavski and all this whole history of theater. And there's a style of learning there. I ended up taking Meisner technique classes. So Meisner was one of the big teachers of that, of the movement. And the technique was, it starts off with these very simple exercises that when you do them, they're so simple. It's almost like, what's the point? But then the next exercise is a little bit more than that. And the next exercise is a little bit more than that. And before you know it, you're doing these amazing, or I was doing these amazing things. I was crying on stage on purpose through using the technique, which I never would have expected I could do. And so if you look at the way I teach now, it's Meisner technique, but instead of, um, by the way, they're doing construction next door. I hope that it's not too loud. I can hear it a little bit, but we could, okay. we could try to uh, get it in post. So the, um, Hopefully not too distracting. I feel like now we're all used to like, we used to be in sound studios and now it's just our living rooms. I know. And all right. So I take out the stuff that's specific to acting and I bring in stuff that's specific to mostly my clients are business leadership, but I have some politicians and people like that too. There's lots of areas that you can do leadership in sports and education and so forth. So I put in exercises that are relevant to that style of leadership. So it begins with very simple basics. And then you move up. To, so now I'm going to go from Meisner technique, but this is the, how you learn 
sports, uh, to play a musical instrument, to perform dance, singing, uh, the military. You begin with very simple basics. And when you get a certain level of proficiency with the basics, you move up to intermediate. When you move up from there, you get to mastery. And there's no limit to how well you can act or how well you can play tennis. So you can, there's no place to stop. You can always get better. And as you gain fluency in it, you, you communicate more, you learn more about yourself. It's a wonderful experience. And it just, as far as I can tell, people didn't do it with leadership. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, that's why I ended up at West Point and places like that. Right. So tell me about, about that West Point gig. You know, you're, you're working with professors who are also captain through colonels, you know, typically um, you're working with the student population who's looking to become the next leader and officer. And I'll tell you the truth. When I, when I spent four years of my life in Air Force uh, Junior ROTC, which, you know, doesn't sound like a lot, but <laughs> uh, it, was, it was an interesting experience because my experience of the leadership was uh, really all about ego. If uh, somebody had joined two weeks before me and didn't know half of what I knew, their word still got uh, accepted as fact versus what's the truth or optimization. And so within military, I always find that there's so much, um, what's the word, overage of of duties, like somebody who's knows his business is being told to do his business and then has to do it twice or three times. Right. And so that leadership doesn't really translate to, um, to trust in the person that you have hired. Whereas in business, we're starting to learn that you've got to like not micromanage. And so within regards to West Point and what you're doing with the military there, how does that micromanage versus leadership and, um, and breaking the ego of leadership so that it's really more of a service position versus a, I am a leader position. Well, you asked a lot there. I don't know if I can cover all of that. And you distinguish between micromanagement and leadership. The, what I heard, I would make the distinction between authority and leadership. And, and so your experience in the military is much greater than mine. And, and by the way, I appreciate your service. And it was, it was just Memorial Day. And uh, it's, I have a deep appreciation for the, and a greater appreciation for the freedom that I have as a result of having spent time with the military. Very limited time. But my understanding is that there's a chain of command. And if you're given a direct order, you got to follow a lawful direct order. But that's the last thing you want to rely on you can rely on authority if you have to. And what, what is authority if not the ability to hurt someone if they don't do what you tell them to do? Well, that's almost an invitation for them to undermine that authority if they can, because I don't want you to hurt me if I don't do what you tell me to do. But if you can find out why I, if you can find something, a motivation inside me that you can connect with the task, then I'll want to do it for my intrinsic motivation. That's what I really work on. I, that's not very well taught in school. Uh, and, and yet it's not that hard to teach. Okay, so I, I want you to give me an example. I'm gonna use me as an example because you know, I, it's my show, I get to do that. But I have a seven-year-old, I'm a dad. Uh -huh. And 
there are times in which I want to be an authority, authoritarian with him. You know, it's like, you need to do this. You need to do this. That's it. No, no questions. And then there's this other side of me that's going, what I'm doing sometimes isn't working as well as I'd like it to. And I'd much rather have a pleasant, peaceful life with my son than, than one that's adversarial. So I'm trying to learn how to be a leader as a father and do what you say is motivate his intrinsic motivation. So give me a kind of like, how would, how would you go about doing that? Like what, what's the, the pieces? What are the questions I would ask myself? Well, I'm going to translate this into piano. You, you ask like, how do I play this piece? And I'm, really to learn how to play this, you have to practice the basics. And, re- and if you're starting from, you're not starting from, I don't know where you're starting from, but if you start from never having played piano before, you got to start with the scales. I can tell you play when he, when, when it says this note, hit that key, when it says that note, hit that key, but that's not music. That's not musical expression. That's just mechanical doing things. So if someone wants to learn how to improve their relationships with others, yeah, you, you got to practice the basics in, in what you're talking about there. If I want to motivate someone through their intrinsic motivations, I have to find out what those motivations are, which means I have to listen to them. I have to observe what motivates them. And generally what I'm going to do is I'll ask them what motivates you. Not quite like that. I'll ask what's some, yeah. What are things you like? Yeah. What are some things that you like? And they're generally going to protect themselves. They're, they're not, like, I presume your son, well, how old is he? Seven. Seven. So he's not at the stage where he's just going to say the opposite just because, you know, but he's, he might not be aware of it himself. He might not really know, like maybe he likes to play video games, but is it because it's fun because it's distracting or whatever? So after asking, I'm going to presume that the answer that people give at different ages for different reasons is not the full answer. It's, but in general, it's going to be a mix of the answer plus a few layers on top of protecting themselves of what they think you want you they think you want to hear what they think is the right answer so then I'm going to ask a series of confirming clarifying questions not not putting myself so if, if i say um uh you know i might ask you what what's what's your passion behind leadership why why does leadership matter so much to you you'll probably give me an answer whatever your answer whatever your answer is, if I repeat it back to you, even if I get a word for word, exactly what you said, your words can't match what's in your heart and in your mind. So I'm not going to get it quite right. Even if I say exactly what you said. So you're probably going to say, no, that's not quite right. If I ask you, well, can you correct me? And and then I I keep confirming, clarifying until you go, yes, that's it. That's exactly it. Now I know what motivates you. Now I have something, now I have the intrinsic thing inside you, one of many of, you know, an infinite number of things that motivate you. It could be experiences, it could be hopes, dreams, but it's going to be something that I identify as, um, if it's, if it's something very particular to you, it's probably not, it's probably something more deep down that I can empathize with. When I get something like that, then I can, if I can connect that to the task, then I will inspire the person. But how, how to do all that, I mean, I just jumped like this is weeks worth of, of the course into one quick thing, because it takes a while to learn how to ask the question effectively, how to listen, how to confirm and clarify. Yeah, but you have, you have that outline that you've been able to very clearly express. So the- yeah, I'm, I'm answering as a, as a 
as a, an educator? Yeah, no, it's ask questions, learn about the person that, that you're trying to motivate. So no, and then assess and reassess and clarify. Those are all um, great tips for, for the audience. So no, I appreciate. I would say not so much, oh, sorry to interrupt, but not so much tips as signposts to go along the way. The, the tips would be like practice the basics. It, um, I would, I would, tips would be like what to do specifically to develop those skills. Right. So, okay. So questioning skills, let's, let's go to that one first. What, what are some tips on how to develop questioning skills? In, in this area of, of finding out what, what, what exactly, exactly. And so I'll, I'll just give you, so there's a difference between asking questions to gather a solution or to solve a problem. And there's ways to ask questions to interrogate and, basically get somebody to admit what you already think that they want to know, what, what you, you know, think that they want to tell you. So there's two different ways to ask questions in my world. In your world, how, how do you ask questions that lead to the results that you want to get? Well, in this area, I, I would say start with the expe expectation that they have a passion that's different than what you expect. When I say passion, I mean strong motivation, uh, not necessarily related to like physical passions, just a strong motivation. Take for granted that they do, and it's probably not what you expect. It will be a mix of what you expect plus other things. So when you get an answer, so you're going to get something about them that you couldn't possibly know except that they would tell you. And when they tell you, it's going to be a mix of what is in there plus some protection, plus these other things. So, but they want, it's one of the great feelings in life is to share what you care about most to someone who supports you for it. So your questions, when you confirm and clarify, here's a way to get them to shut up or to clam up is to judge them. And even positive judgment, people are like, oh, if I said it was good. Well, I know when someone judges me one way, if I let them do that all they want, that at some point it's going to go the other way. So I generally don't say, oh, I try to avoid good, bad, right, and wrong, better, worse, improve, words that have, in judge to have judgment built in. And then, so if someone says, um, you know, if I say, why do you, you seem to really like doing X? What's the, what's the motivation behind it? And they say something, I don't say, oh, that's a good reason. And I definitely don't say that's a bad reason. I say, oh, I, I might comment on how I feel about it. Like, oh, that's interesting, but not in a judgmental way. Uh, not in a good, bad, right, wrong way. Um, and I try not to, I try to avoid injecting myself. Like if, if they say I do it because of this, I say, oh, really? I do it because of that. Then they kind of pick up, oh, he wasn't, he doesn't care about me. He just, he was looking for an excuse to talk about himself, which I'm, I, which I often do. And that doesn't, that, that's more for me, not for them. And therefore it's not conducive for leading, for leadership. It's more entertainment for myself. Okay. So again, I, you know, I think I want to just clarify the questioning is meant to lead to a motivation, not an interrogation of judgment. Like you're not putting a judgment on the person of whether their answer is right or wrong, good or bad, up or down and indifferent. It's just trying to gather information very flat. Yeah. Uh, build information and develop a relationship, a rapport with a person of support supportive, non-judgmental curiosity um, so that they, they, 
when I repeat back to them and when I really get it, a motivation, they say, yeah, that's it. That feeling is a very, the feeling of feeling understood for something important is a, it's a, um, how do I describe? I mean, it's a, it's a feeling that's as powerful as love. I would say to feel understood by someone euphoric. Yeah. And, uh, it makes me, it makes me want to open up more with a person when someone does that with me. I mean, the fact that you just clarified with me, that's just what I was talking about. I, I don't know if listeners could pick up on this, but I was like, oh yeah, I do want to clarify it. Like I, I want to make sure he gets this. And, and when you get it, I feel like, oh man, now that I've told you that and you've, I get support on that, I feel motivated to, t- to tell you more things about myself from a leadership perspective. If you have people telling you more and more things about themselves that they care about, that's more and more things that you can lead them with. And this is not leading them, like telling them what to do. It's helping them act on what they really care about. So watching out for the manipulation, right? So I want to just kind of break that part of, you know, we're talking about motivation can be used for good or bad, right? So once you get a, a hold of their motivation, right? So how does somebody tell if somebody who's leading them is gathering their motivations for the benefit or the not benefit. So motivations that could be like, well, I want you to uh, take this poison because it'll be good for the country. Right. Or I want you to, you know, it's like, so how do I get, okay. So I know that you're really, really patriotic. Right. And so Mm -hmm. you will take that poison because you believe fully that it's good for the country. So that would be to me like a, what could possibly be an abuse of leadership versus something that would be more positive. So how do we, how do we as a listener, as an audience member who's maybe being led or wanting to lead, how do they make sure that they do it with pure motivation or that they're being led from somebody who has pure motivation versus being led through fraud or, you know, um, what's the word? withholding of information, not being completely authentic. Well, this, so this is pretty powerful stuff and you're working with people's deep emotions and and you could easily hurt someone this way. You definitely, when you do this and it takes months to develop it, uh, I mean, or years, some people stumble on it, maybe found it as a child, just they happen to get a technique like it. And uh, Eisenhower said, you know, leadership, uh, I'm gonna paraphrase here, is getting him to do your thing for his reason. And so it's very similar to what I'm talking about. And you will, when someone opens up with you and shares these things, you will feel a Machiavellian feeling of like, oh, now I can get them to do things. You will also, even from a purely Machiavellian standpoint, you will recognize if you use that once that way, that's it. You've lost that, you've made an enemy of that person, they're going to hate you. And so even if you were purely psychopathic, you would recognize, well, I, I can't speak to what it's like for somebody to be psychopathic, but if you're, not, you're gonna realize you, you got one shot at, at, at ruining the relationship with this person forever, and you're not gonna wanna do it, but that's you're also what, going to- Well, that's, a, that's on a one-to-one. Let me, I'm just gonna interject. So you, you, you consult with politicians. So politicians are famous for making promises and leading people into places where 
they are literally where the people are literally voting against their own self-interest, right? So yes, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, the person may know, okay, my motivation is a little Machiavellian. I might want to turn that down so that I don't isolate this one person who I'm in a relationship with. But when you're a politician and you're ruling over a hundred thousand, a million, two million, however many, and you don't have those personal relationships, you tend to get led down a, a, a wrong line. And so as, as an audience, let's say a voter, right, who's mm -hmm. voting for, for policy, who wants to know that they're being led by somebody who mm -hmm. is being authentic and non-Machiavellian, right? How do they recognize that? Well, I want to recognize that we've, we've completely switched domains. Learning to play piano is one thing. Learning how to command an audience at Rock, um, not Rock, uh, at um, Lincoln Center, say, it's a very different thing. Showmanship on stage is very different. There's a lot of stage music, uh, session musicians who are technically proficient and can play music better than anyone, but they can't you know, work a crowd. Right. Likewise, there's plenty of musicians who can, they know two chords, but they can work a crowd. And so it's very different sets of skills to lead one person one-on-one, -on -one, which is what we were talking about, and leading a large group of people. So leading that large group of people, that's a whole other story. I mean, if well, you're- Well, in this case, you know, leadership is like, you are on stage at a TEDx, you're leading an audience of people. It's not a one-on-one -on -one conversation, right? So a lot of what we do in life these days is designed to not be one-on-one, -on -one, to lead- groups and you know we're looking at this new society so to speak and going okay how do i how do i find my place of leadership here and so i think we are starting to need to focus on those large groups as well and yeah i get to your point that one you got to learn one before you learn three before you learn 20 so yeah um there was a lot of questions there. How do we protect ourselves against somebody manipulating us through um, getting the whole crowd to do something and then you getting swept up with the crowd and then realizing later, why didn't, I didn't mean to do that at all. I mean, there's a lot of personal leadership to protect yourself against these things, to know what your values are, to know, to identify these techniques ahead of time to personal leadership. I just want to, that's what I was hoping you would go to is the personal leadership. Yeah. And also, what is your circle of friends? Who do you... Hiring is a major piece of leadership. If you hire people who are misaligned with the mission of your company or your team or your, your friendship, it's not going to work out, even if they're, they're great at what they do, but they don't really value what your mission is. So whom you hang out with, how you reflect in other times, and being aware of what your values are and acting on those things. Everybody, here's, everybody values family. Everybody values health. Everybody values um, uh, you know, civic duty in some sense. The question is not, do you value these things? The question is, when one is pit against the other, which do you choose? That's much more challenging. If you value your fitness, but you also value saving money, someone sometimes they're at odds. So which one do you pick? If you don't face these challenges yourself, these, these choices, you don't really know your values. You can read about Plato's values and Aristotle's and compare and contrast that with Maya Angelou all you want, but you don't know your values until you face these things. So 
as you said earlier, on a small scale, you got to do these things when the, when it's not like life or death. Then when you're in situations where it's like a major thing, what do I do? I, I mean, an example I use a lot is Muhammad Ali. When he, he had won the Olympic gold medal, he became heavyweight champion of the world. He opposed the Vietnam War and they drafted him. And he, they said, are you going to cross this line? And he refused to cross the line. He said, I'm a conscientious objector. Lots of, lots more depth than this. He didn't make that choice at that line. He reflected on that a lot before. And before, now we look back at Vietnam as, as a controversial affair. At that time, I mean, even Jackie Robinson said, Ali, go. You know, they're not going to make him fight. He's not going to put his health at risk. And this was in the army that had, you know, beaten Hitler. It didn't have a Vietnam in his background. So he had faced these things on his own before on a world stage. To ask someone, to, uh, another story I talk about a lot, um, Dave Chappelle, I don't know if you know this. A lot of people know that he was um, offered $50 million contract when Dave Chappelle, when the Chappelle show was doing really well and he walked away. So actually on, on Inside the Actors Studio, he was being interviewed by um, uh, James Lipton. And he tells a story about when he was graduating high school. His father says, so what do you want to do? And he went to a performance arts high school. And his answer was like this really cocky, I want to be a great comedian. And comedy is not uh, like an easy path to success. So his father says, well, if, you're, if you feel that way about it, if you're so confident, I think you should do it. But things can get crazy in Hollywood. You don't know. Name your price now. Figure out what's beyond what you're willing to do now when you're calm. And then, okay, so now he's talking to James Lipton. He turns to the audience who all know about his later history. And he goes, hence Africa. Meaning after his father gave him that advice, he reflected and thought and spent his time and, and, and faced his, you know, what's, what's right for me, what's wrong for me. And when it got to create, who knows what, they weren't like, here's $50 million, have a great time. They were saying, who knows what was attached to that? Who knows what kind of craziness goes on in Hollywood? Right. And he had named his price. And at both cases, Ali and Chappelle disappeared for a while. Ali almost went bankrupt at the prime of his career, came back and became heavyweight champion of the world again. And I think that's what helped him become not just the greatest boxer. I think many call him the greatest of all time of like everything, but certainly a, a major figure of the 20th century. Chappelle, I mean, his specials now are, are bigger than the Chappelle show was, I think. Well, the Chappelle show is something special. But, you know, um, he got named the, um, the Mark Twain Award from the Kennedy Center he got. Yeah, it was a beautiful ceremony. Yeah. And again, he was talking about, I will fight for your freedom to speak your mind because I believe in this art. So these are examples of preparation that most of us will not face on the scale that they did with the world looking on with tens of millions of dollars at stake. But it's the same technique that gets us there. Reflection, yeah. what, what is your price ahead of time? Yeah. Preparation. Asking those questions is to me, you know, like one of the best things you could do before you do anything and I find that it's, it's a very difficult thing to get others to ask their own questions. It's like they can reflect if I'm asking them the question. It's hard to get people to come up with and then reflect on their own questions. Do you have any specific 
questions that you suggest people ask themselves? More than the questions, it's really, you have to face the challenge yourself. You have to, it's not just which, like, which do I value more between, I don't know, saving money or, or fitness. Make that choice. You know, do you go for the, I'm, I, I'm trying to think of like a situation where money and fitness go against each other. Um, or do you can't afford you know, what do you, them, can't afford the equipment, can't afford the, the, the proper food. You know, I mean, there's yeah, all the crazy the, thing is that all the reasons why people do that. And, you know, I'm smiling because all the things you're talking about of like going, I don't like paying for gyms. And so I have my kettlebells over there. I had all those bodyweight exercises. So I, and you can just see the, the tip of my uh, rowing machine over there. And so I have all this, uh, I figured out how to exercise at like a fraction of the cost of what other people, what people pay. I pay in 10 years what people pay per month at like Equinox. And, and can you tell how proud I am of that? I Actually just, that's, yeah. and, and then with the food, I found out how to get, uh, I, I build relationships with the farmers at the farmer's market. So I get vegetables much cheaper than everyone else does because they like me because I, I talk to them and, and I buy in season. So it's all, uh, and so I spend less money than most do, even though I get the highest quality, uh, you know, ripe farm fresh vegetables. So that's why I had trouble picking that example because I found out how to be fit and save money and how yeah. to eat healthy and save money and delicious. A lot of people, a lot of people don't really know that that's, uh, you know, possible, but I, I, you know, obviously 27 years I've been doing this and most of the ways that a person can get healthy costs a lot less than being sick. It's yeah. just a fact. And, uh, you know, but as a leader is like question. So like, I'm writing a, a course right now on questioning. It's just all kinds of questions and ways to, to ask yourself things that will lead you towards wherever you want to go. So you personally lead yourself. I'm kind of like guiding the leading of themselves in that stuff. But the questioning, the, the kinds of questions, like you could ask a question like, why me? Or you can ask a question like, how much better could it get? You know, like, very different kinds of questions and how they lead your brain to an answer. So, so when you, when you say questions like that, then my, my advice is there is, is make those a dialogue with multiple people. I, I meditate regularly and that's very useful. And there's something that happens when you talk to someone else, someone who's supportive, non-judgmental, but still challenging that definitely think of those questions solo, meditate on them, think about them when you're lying in bed at night or waking up in the morning and you have, you know, nothing's getting in your way. Also talk to your best friends about it. Talk to your boss about it. Talk to coworkers, talk to your mom and dad, talk to your kids, talk to, what are, what, it, are, they, what are they talking to them about? Cause I'll tell you the truth. What it, what it feels like in my head, as you're saying that mm -hmm. is find out your, your life on by committee. You know, what you're, oh, it's, you're, what's important to you by committee. What's it, you know, it's like, I'm asking myself about what is it as important to me as a leader or how do I do, you know, so it's like, I wouldn't want to do that by committee, so to speak. I might want to ask them afterwards, what's your opinion on this as well. But after I'd already gotten to my real truth, my personal truth. Well, I don't think you're going to get to final answers on these things. I mean, you'll get to an answer that's right for you at that time. And I think that'll change as you age, as things change. Of course. Uh, 
when you say by committee, that imply, that feels to me like you're trying to find a consensus or, but what I'm saying, I'm suggesting is have people challenge you. So if I say, you know, um, uh, I forget the questions that you just asked, but like, what, like, what do I want out of a career? That's an interesting question to, to ponder. And if I talk to some people about it and say, you know, push me on this, challenge me. It's not to, not for them to annoy me, not for them, but for them to think of like, what might, I, what, from their experience that I have not had, but they had, will they see that I haven't? Um, you know, John Stuart Mill talked about if your idea hasn't been challenged, you don't really know, you may be right, but you don't know it. You may, you may be, there may be something more, something better for you that you haven't hit on yet, that when challenged to support why you'll hit on. That's what I'm going for is, um, it's not a committee so much as a devil's advocates or people to provoke greater reflection. Okay. I can see that. I just think that that should be done after the personal authentic reflection. And then, and then somebody can like, okay, now what do you think of this? And maybe you have growth for me from where I'm at, but I I would do the personal questioning first personally. But, um, but I do understand how getting input from multiple places is going to increase your uh, awareness of yourself. I certainly didn't mean it as a as solo, as the only thing to do, uh, as a augment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, I'm, I'm just reflecting. I'm trying to make sure that I'm clear, the audience is clear, that, mm -hmm. you know, that the information is... is uh, disseminate in a way that everybody kind of is on the same level of, of what they hear. So um, when I, when I heard you, I heard get people to challenge you in what you're wanting to do. And I thought first thing is first, I just want to, you know, for me at least, like I ask myself questions and then I go, okay, so this is what I want to do. Do you think that this is a good, you know, road, bad road, what are your experiences on this road, and getting other people's input um, of that. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting like to be very specific so the audience can be clear on what you're saying. I hope that makes it more helpful for them. Did that make sense what I just said? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, as you were saying it for me, I think I think of I do reflect personally and come to some results. And then, but I, I personally then think, what more is there after this? What have I not thought of? And so I don't think of it as that my solo answers, I don't think of as like the right ones or the best ones. Or I'm, um, they're not final. It's a step on the way. Nothing is final but death. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just going to say, it's just Nothing not until death. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So, yeah. So fascinating things about you. I just want to break up the tension a little bit. You spent time in Manhattan off the grid. So I'm not quite off the grid. Uh, I'm, I intend to get off the grid. I'm working very hard at it. And so um, I have over there my battery, but I haven't yet gotten the solar panels to attach to it that I think I can, I think I can pull That's it off. That's your next 12 to 24 month yeah. plan, right? Yeah. yeah. So that plan is in, is in motion. It's in motion. So where are you now with it? And why did you decide to do it? I mean, I remember talking to you about the minimalist and the 
simple life, right? And how happy you are. And people are really looking to get happy these days. So, you know, tell me why you chose this as a way to simplify your, your happiness. Yeah, there's been a long process. When I was a kid, I would never have thought of like less, you know, I definitely thought, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins. And I had a friend, his parents were richer and I was always trying to catch up with all the stuff he was always getting and computers and cameras and stuff. And, uh, and then, you know, one of the early stages, this wall behind me that has a blackboard used to be all books and getting rid of the books was really hard. It took several iterations and probably a year of first getting rid of the really books. I knew I'd never read again. And then getting rid of ones that are a little more interesting, but not really that interesting. And then eventually getting rid of like the, the big books that I really cared about, but knowing I, I, I didn't need them. And this, that's a whole process that people can go through on their own. Then, and there are various different things that I do over time that I, I've come to associate getting rid of unnecessary things as bringing, as creating freedom. Yeah, getting rid of like my marathon medals. I got rid of those. And I was like, oh, as soon as I got rid of them, I was like, that was a mistake. Like, that was, they're irreplaceable. But then later, after a couple of years of, of regretting it, then I was like, you know what? I'm glad that I got rid of them because I ran, I mean, I came in like 10,000th place. It's like, no one knows who came in second to, uh, to um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, the guy who won, anyway, no one knows who comes in second for, who came behind uh, Michael Phelps. Right, right. I came in 10,000th place. Second, it's like, it's pretty far from second. So what was so big about these things? And then after that, I ran a couple more marathons. And so I had these other, these other medals and I was like, now I know not to get them in the first place. It's hard to get rid of something once you've acquired it and you start getting all those connections to it or attachments to it. But I put on Craigslist free, I put up on free for on Craigslist and some guy came and picked them up. He wanted some other stuff that I was offering free at the same time. And I said, oh, I'd love the medals. And I was like, what do you want the medals for anyway? And he's like, oh, his girlfriend was training for her first half marathon. And he wanted to give it to her as, as like um, a show of appreciation for that and motivation to go for the full marathon. It's like, I'm so happy that this is getting used for something more. So cool. That's cool. Then I, I just released like, I think 1500 conference uh, IDs, you know, the, oh, the, the little things that you had and yours with your name on them for yeah. concert conference you've ever been to. Yeah. I think I just, tossed about 1500. <laughs> How did it feel? Felt great. Yeah. Did so, it, before you did it, were you like, Oh, what if I regret it? Oh no. I, I saved them for years. I was planning on putting them in a, in a like curio thing. I wanted to display them. Like, look at all this stuff that I did mm -hmm. right to grow and learn and like proud of them. And I spoke here and I spoke there. And then I just was like, no, it's time. It, it, <laughs> just got to go. And it felt yeah. so good. So these experiences, I mean, there's all sorts of experiences like that. And, and the more I've done it, the more, I mean, there's definitely things I reflect on. I'm like, nope, got to keep this one. And um, recently that happened. I was like, I, 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 there was something I was going through. And I was like, I got to go through this once for the last time and then get rid of it. And I'm going through, and I was like, oh, all right, at least one more time after this. And okay. So about a year and a half ago, I was reading an article about how other cultures, they refrigerate less and they, they um, is about Vietnam in particular, they, they ferment a lot and they don't refrigerate so much. And, you know, I'm, sustainability is a very important thing for me. And, you know, there's a big challenge with um, wind and solar are intermittent. 
So sometimes they can't provide power. So one way to address that is to become more resilient. So I was curious as, as individuals, as a society, we don't really value resilience so much. We talk about it, but we don't value it so much. So I wondered if I could, what if I had to go without power? What if I, so I unplugged my fridge for a while and I ended up making three months that time. And I'd, I had no idea I could do it. And, but then fermentation, I was, it stopped being about what I was giving up and it became what I was adopting. And that was last winter. This winter I went and did it. And actually I'm now, I think today, tomorrow marks six and a half months that my fridge has been unplugged. And I would have thought it was crazy, but I keep learning more about how people used to, I mean, refrigerators have been around what, a hundred years? Mm-hmm. Humans have been around for what, 300,000? And I'm, I'm, I'm eating better. It's really, I'm very surprised at this. And when I realized that when I got an electric bill, $1.70, I got two for $1.70. The last one was $1.40. I'll see what the next one is. I was like, I wonder if I can go off grid. It was really just stumbling into following my nose to, to, in the direction of acting on my values of stewardship to see where it would lead. It, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't think like, let's go off grid. But now that, now that I'm within striking distance of it, I'm like, let's see if I can do it. I like how you said acting on my values. How often do you see people who do not act on their values? And the question that I would have for you is, what are the tricks or the things that have made you strong enough to act on your values? While most people would talk about sustainability, I'll give you Al Gore as an example. He's flying around on private jets. His house takes up more electricity than like seven other residential properties, right? Not that now, at least that was like 20 years ago, but that you get the idea, right? Some people act on their values. Some people just talk about them. So how do you get to a place where acting on them is your default? Well, th- this is the eternal challenge of life. I mean, to, acting on your values, value, what's evaluate, good, bad. What, to act on your values means to do what you think is good. It may be different than other people's values, but your values, are, but, and that's in conflict with, with what's easier often or what everyone else is doing. So the more that you act by your values, the more that, let me speak personally, the more that I act by my values, the more that I improve my life, improve, make more good. And one of the things that you told me you did is you stopped flying. Yeah. Although that came after avoiding packaged food. Right. And you said that that helped your life, which most people will find interesting because you travel for a living. So. Yeah. That, well, I didn't, originally choose to stop flying totally. I originally chose to go without flying for a year, expecting it to be a horrible year. I, at that time, I felt like I'm taking one for the team, but I got to find out this doesn't sound sustainable all this flying. Could I get by without it? I was surprised after two, three months of it that, again, it wasn't what I was getting rid of. It was what I replaced it with, which was much more community connection, spending more time with family, having more control over my career. I would have thought it'd be the opposite. I would think I'd spend less time with family, have less control over my career. And when I didn't have the option of flying, I was able to create more of those things, not less. Sorry about all this construction. I hope it's not too loud. It's all right. This should be unidirectional. So 
It's all right. No problem. So um, what are you, you know? Eh. Oh, and sorry. And, and again, it's practicing the basics. It's really starting with the simpler things. If I had not challenged myself to go without packaged food for a week, there's no way I would have gone for not flying. And the packaged food I also thought was going to be, you know, I live in Manhattan. It's like great food everywhere. And am I going to say no to the best chefs in the world or, you know, some of them? And again, that, that pattern that I described with the, fly, with the not flying happened with the food too. It's not that I, I don't feel like I'm missing out on restaurants now because when I go to the farmer's market, it's just this cornucopia of like right now over here, I got the, the strawberries are in, are in season in New York. I haven't had strawberries in 10 months because they, they weren't in season. But my joy of strawberries is greater now than it was before. Now that experience with the strawberries, well, with farmer's markets instead of um, uh, restaurants, that experience on a small scale gave me the gumption to try it on a bigger scale with the flying. But even the avoiding packaged food on that scale, that came from other things before that. So I didn't practice in the basics, playing my scales. Got it. So deprivation leads to uh, happiness. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. It's, uh, I mean, if I had to pick anything, it would be more like Jocko uh, Willick who says um, discipline equals freedom. So it looked like deprivation, but it was living, my value was stewardship. My value was leaving the earth better than I found it. My value was not polluting other people's air that they breathed. That was the value. From that value, flying doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Now that benefits, the flying benefited me. So now I would say it felt, in retrospect, it felt, it, it looks selfish to me what I was doing. But I want to see the Eiffel Tower. I want to see a Machu Picchu. Okay, some people have been, now I would say people have been displaced from their homes to drill for the oil. Nine million people died in 2019 from breathing air, from breathing. That air didn't, that came out the back of, you know, vehicles. And uh, I'm very grossly simplifying here. Right. So yeah. the question was, could I live by a value of stewardship to others, service to others, even when I felt like, but I'm going to miss that on the Eiffel Tower. And this is the answer to your question you asked before, is how do you do what you think is right, even when it's easier not to? Is you practice, and you practice, and you practice. That's what I've done. And it's worked out for me so far. I, I'm, I believe that I'm happier now than I've ever been. I, I believe that I'm more effective than I've ever been. And I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. That's awesome. I, I've been uh, simplifying my brain a little bit with uh, having a son. And um, as, I, as I'm listening to you again, uh, you know, I was so glad to talk to you because I definitely create a structure and, I, and I've told my son, you know, like the more structure you have, the more freedom you have. And the more discipline, the more you're able to, you know, discipline yourself and focus, the more time you'll have. So I try to give him the consequence, good or bad to the action, you know, as my way of being in leadership to him. Um, but it does sound like, like the idea is to really challenge yourself to live the value that you speak. And 
this human condition is full of contradiction and um what do we do with the contradiction other than play with it and, and practice like you say you know you got to practice focusing if you want to be able to focus it's not something that you're born with you got to practice it you got to practice learning to play piano right you got to practice leadership skills so where are ways that people can can um like I know you have a training program that you use for leadership. So tell us a little bit about that. I don't normally do promotion, but I just felt called to ask you. Okay. Well, I also want to comment that there are plenty of things that I've tried that didn't work out. Um, yoga comes to mind. I did it for a couple of years. I really loved working with my um, instructor, but ultimately it's just, that was not, it didn't hit for me. And there are plenty of other things that I try and I was like, you know, that's not right. So it's not like this is like a nonstop path. There's lots of wrong turn, not wrong turns, but you know, explore explorations that don't pan out. So, and there's also a video that comes to mind. I call this the, the, the most boring video online. If you, if you search for, it's like LeBron James practicing for an hour and it's him with the trainer and he, it's just practicing. Like he dribbles a bit. He does like, um, I don't know, a whole bunch of free throws, a whole bunch of whatever, different stretches and things. There's, I don't think they even, I don't think they even talk. So it's really boring, but you've seen him play. I mean, he, he does spin moves and crazy stuff on the court that like you can't imagine. And he doesn't actually practice those. He practices the basics and that's how you get to those things. It's, and you know, when I dance, I took dance lessons for a while. I like it. I'm glad I did. I'm not going to become a dancer. But I remember it was salsa and I kept asking like, what about the spin moves? All these spin moves. I want to do the spin moves. And the instructor kept saying, it's the feet. You got to get the feet right. It's the rhythm. Uh, so my rhythm was terrible. And, and eventually I was like, oh, it's in the feet. <laughs> and it's really, the more you do these things, the more you get back to these very basic things. And um, a lot of what I do is really giving people very basic skills. And the more you practice them, the more that, the the what the shines the thrills the not the thrills the um the fancy stuff comes if you practice the basics if you don't practice the basics it's pretty tough and so the basics are a lot of like, like um i mean my book has four units understand yourself lead yourself understand others lead others and it's a progression and each set of exercises is different like understand yourself is more reflective introspective, uh, lead yourself is more getting advice from people, um, disciplining, uh, applying discipline so that you can put these things into practice. Um, lead others is much more about what we were talking about earlier is making them feel comfortable sharing what motivates them so that you can uh, connect that to the task so that they act on intrinsic motivation. And, you know, for the different types of each skill has different types of exercises to help build those things. I don't know if that's too glib of an answer or too, too oh. high level. Yeah, no, not at all. No, it's a, it's a perfect answer. So how can people get a hold of you if they'd like to, uh, to chat with you? So joshuaspodek.com, everything's there. Um, in the upper right corner is the links to the books and the TEDx talks and to contact me. Um, I mean, I'm on, on, I'm on social media, but it's, it's much more of the blog and the podcast is where I put most of my stuff out. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. I, you know, 
I'm a, I'm a believer that in order to create a new tomorrow, we have to challenge ourselves like a lobster in its shell. You know, you got to break free from one shell before you could get to your next shell. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But if we have more conversations that explore these kinds of, you know, topics, then we'll get to a, a deeper truth. And that deeper truth, my hope is, will help to activate people's vision for a better world so that they can truly lead themselves and lead others. And, uh, and we can change the world together. So I really appreciate you being on here. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. I hope that, uh, I think I said things that I think me in the past would have benefited from. Different people may resonate or not, but I hope, I hope for some people at least that we, things that we shared help them further their path. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And this has been another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I've been your host, Ari Gronich with Josh Spodek. Thank you so much for coming on. And remember, we're activating your vision for a better world. So what are you going to do today, tomorrow, and next week to really live your perfect life? Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.